I welcome you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to Matthew's Gospel, the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel. This morning, um, we're going to pause our study of John and consider one of the uh, passages. There's not many passages in the Bible that tell us of the birth of Jesus. John has none. Um, Mark really doesn't have any. It's Luke and Matthew. We've studied Luke's gospel a number of years ago. And so this morning, I want to take the time we have to consider the announcement of Jesus' birth to Joseph um, by the angel in Matthew chapter 1. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. You'll find the text on the back of the notes. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to follow along as we read. Let's begin by reading Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, an angel, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, how wonderful are your ways. Your plan of redemption and salvation, who could have predicted? In your wisdom, it pleased you to send your Son into the world in this manner. Let us behold the glory of the Lord Jesus at his birth, the wisdom of your plan. Let us understand it rightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, there's a number of things we could do with this. This is a large passage. I want to look at it with the time we have to see how to frame, how to understand Jesus' birth. Um, The image of a child in a manger is one even the unbelieving culture finds endearing. Christmas is probably one of our greatest cultural celebrations, the imagery, the, the goodwill, the peace, the celebration. And yet the angel's announcement to Joseph helps frame the significance of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in a particular way. Matthew's focus being particular. I want to look at three things we can learn about the meaning of the birth of Jesus, because it matters what we make of this. I, I fear for some, Christmas is simply an endearing, beautiful, heartwarming, family-related time of year. That's true for many of us. But if that's all it means to you, that is woefully insufficient. Um, Joseph was preparing to marry Mary, And when he learned that she was pregnant, he was thinking about calling it off because, of course, he made assumptions, reasonable assumptions. And the Lord sent an angel to him to help inform him what to make of this and what he should do. The birth of 
Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother married been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So first, first truth. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus was born of a virgin. The beginning of the Christian truth claim is a supernatural claim. It will not do to have Jesus simply be a good man, a good teacher, a wise prophet, or rabbi. The the Christian truth claim starts with a miraculous birth, a virgin birth. This was unusual. It was unique. Precisely because of that was why Joseph was planning on calling the marriage off. And so the, the Christian story starts with Jesus being a unique baby, unlike any other who had been born. At least two important truths flow out of this. First, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus will go on to claim that he is the Son of God in Matthew's Gospel, in John's Gospel. He claims to be the Son of God. And whereas you and I can be sons and daughters of God in one sense, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In a very different and unique sense, Jesus is the Son of God. And that tracks all the way back to his conception. He has a mortal human mother, but she conceived not of Joseph or another man, but of the Holy Spirit of God. And this then allows, point two, for Jesus' claim and the important truth for us that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. This is critical in understanding who this baby in the manger is. This is God in the flesh. This is a fully human child and a divine child. And the the parentage of Mary, his mother, and the Spirit of God is what enables this to be so. As old as Job, the problem of how can we deal with God has been on the minds of people. I think our view of God is far too low. We, We don't tremble at the thought of God. More often than not, we think of God maybe trembling for us, having to account for himself, having to give us some answers. But the true understanding is that if there is a God, he is other. He is transcendent. He is greater. He is mightier. How can we approach an infinite being? How can we draw near God? And Job, as he's wrestling through his sufferings, says this, He is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come together in a trial. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And what Job is is voicing is as he has heartfelt, visceral questions, he wants to ask God of why suffering is taking place in his life. He realizes he is in no position to ask questions of God. He is in no position to draw near and say, what is going on? For he's God. And he cries out, there is no arbiter. And I love the language, someone who can lay a hand on us both. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the virgin birth, because of his divine conception, is uniquely able to lay a hand on us both. He can stand with us as man. According to Hebrews 2, he had to be fully made like us in every respect so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest. And as God... He can intercede with us before the Father. Where is Jesus Christ right now, biblically? The Bible says he is in the very throne room of God interceding on our behalf. 
All this because he is fully God and he is fully man. In Romans chapter 1, Paul ties it up simply this way. Concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. The first thing Joseph learns is this child is holy. This child is fathered by the Holy Spirit. Do not be afraid to marry her, son of David, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's the first framing truth. Jesus was born of a virgin, and it's a critical truth claim, understanding who this baby in the manger is. Second, and we'll spend most of our time of what we have this morning, Jesus was born to save his people from their sins. Verse 21. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Point number one, Jesus' name, as best as we can guess in Hebrew, pronounced Yeshua or Joshua, means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. The the Yah in the Yeshua is an abbreviated form of Yahweh. And so the name of the child will be Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. What's the significance of this child? Well, this child has come into the world to answer our greatest need. And so you've got to start by asking, what is our greatest need? We're facing a new year. There's a war in Ukraine. There's bloodshed in the Gaza Strip. There's a presidential election upcoming. There is COVID moving around all number of things to be concerned of. And so when you stop and think, what is our greatest need? What is the greatest threat facing you and me? What is the greatest danger to us? The temptation is to think it's something out there. It's that this war in Ukraine might go global and hot. It's that there might be a new super COVID variant. It's that the wrong person might get elected. Biblically, your greatest need, your greatest problem is you. My greatest problem is me. What the greatest threat I face is not external to me, it is internal. Jesus came to solve that problem. He will save his people from their sins. Point B, Jesus is a savior from sin. He is a savior from sin. Point one, your biggest problem is you. And this is the basis of Jesus' message in the gospel. Turn to chapter 2. We'll look at John the Baptist and then Jesus. What summarized their message as they called people to be reconciled with God? Let's take a look. Matthew 3. John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What did he say? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You You have untold meaning and potential. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a call to repentance. It was a call to recognize there is something fundamentally wrong with me, inside of me. Turn from it. Renounce it. Grieve your sin. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, and we heard them sung this morning, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths, Well, maybe Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he softens things up. Maybe Jesus comes along and John was kind of hardcore, but Jesus is nice. Look at chapter four. 
chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From this time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because John the Baptist and Jesus understood your and my greatest problem is you and me. It, it, it's so easy to think my, my problems, the things that, that are really matter and are significant are external. They're internal. Christ came to save his people from their sins, not other people's sins. Yes, other people's sins can be painful. Yes, other people's sins against you can have significant consequence. But if you only see yourself first and foremost as a victim of others' sin against you, you will never be able to be reconciled with God because the starting point of the gospel, the meaning of this child is first and foremost, I have offended God. I'm not the victim of crime. I'm the perpetrator of crime. This, again, is the fundamental meaning of the incarnation. A child who has come to save his people from their own sins. That is good news if you can recognize your sin. It's bad news if you think all that's wrong with the world is all those people out there. And the angel frames the incarnation for Joseph. He'll save his people from their sins. Point two, your greatest need then is reconciliation with God. If your greatest problem is your sin, yourself, what you need most of all is to be reconciled with God. And the biblical claim is there's a God who is good and he is righteous and he is just. And all we like sheep have gone our own way. We, we saw his evidence in creation and we refused to be thankful. We refused to honor him and we chose to worship and serve the creature the creation rather than the creator who is forever blessed. And we rebelled against him and we have invited his wrath justly, righteously. That is the state of every one of us outside of Christ. That's how we came into this world. And this child conceived of the Holy Spirit has come to remedy that problem. The greatest possible news if we can be honest about the reality of our dilemma. Point C, and I've got to move quickly here. Point C, Jesus, however, is a savior not for each and every person ultimately. He, he, he invites all to salvation, but not all will be saved. The angel says he will save his people from their sins. So even though, if you go all the way to the end of, of Matthew's gospel, you'll see the Great Commission where the disciples are gone to all the world discipling the nations. There's no tribe. There's no people. There's no group. We're not invited to come. Bow the knee to King Jesus. At the end of the day, not all men, not all women will be saved. Jesus is a savior to save the sins of his people. What does that mean? Point one, not just the Jews, but from all peoples. Not just the Jews, but from all peoples. Now that may be 
Um, easy for us to understand, but in the first instance, in the first century for the Jews, they were set apart peculiar people. This was a new idea. Matthew has already sown seeds of this in Jesus' genealogy. In Matthew's gospel, just prior to our text this morning, is the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew includes some names in the genealogy you don't normally include. If you go to Chronicles, you get eight chapters of genealogies. What doesn't show up very often are women and certainly not the women Matthew names. Let me just show you. Matthew is highlighting a couple things here in the genealogy. He's highlighting Jesus' ignominious roots. There are people in his family tree most Orthodox proud Jews would rather not talk about in polite society. And he's highlighting the Gentiles. Let me just show you. Chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Judah, thinking his stepdaughter was a prostitute, slept with her and conceived a child in the Messianic line. Matthew includes that. You don't normally include women. Matthew includes that. Keep going. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. By Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. And Boaz, the father of Obed. By Ruth, the Midianite. In those few verses, Matthew is highlighted foreigners, sinners in the Messianic line. Now, if you keep reading Matthew, part of that's to attack, to set up the sort of Jewish self-righteousness that they can so easily fall into, that you and I can so easily fall into. But already as hinted at, Jesus' line and his lineage is multi-ethnic. He's a savior, not just for the Jews, but for all peoples. Not all, not just the Jews, but all peoples. How does Jesus save his people? Jesus became, this is the remarkable thing. Why was the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God, critical? Why was it necessary? The eternal word had to become mortal that he might die. The the manger in Bethlehem and the cross cannot be separated. Jesus took on flesh that he might die in the stead of his people. This child, born king of the Jews, came to die. The incarnation is what makes that possible. And in Matthew's gospel, we don't have time to turn there, but I've given you the references. You can see the crucifixion. And Jesus makes it clear. I'll give you one passage. Matthew 26, 28, the Last Supper. Jesus framing what's about to happen. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus sheds his blood, dies on the cross in our stead for the forgiveness of sins. I explained it to my children this way. On the cross, God treated Jesus with the judgment you and I deserved so that God can treat us with the acceptance and the favor that Jesus deserves. No incarnation, no crucifixion. The one makes and prepares the way for the other. Jesus will save his people from their sins and he will do it by dying on a cross. 
That, that, is the, that, that gets back to the problem. How bad is our problem? The only way God can forgive us, the only possible way that we could draw near God and not be destroyed is by the sinless Son of God dying in our stead. And the good news is He did. The humbling news is that and only that could make a way for us to be saved. He's a Savior from His sins. Christ died on the cross and He rose again. And ultimately then, what defines those people? Who are those that Jesus saves from their sins? We've seen the message John the Baptist and Jesus proclaimed, and quite simply, Jesus saves all. All who repent and trust in him. In Matthew chapter 9, t- turn there very quickly. Jesus heals a paralytic. Verse 2 Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, chapter 9. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now the logic is, and again, they get this. We think of people's sin as against each other. You've wronged me. I've offended you. No, the Jews get it. Sin is against God. And so if sin is against God, and God is the one who is offended, who can forgive sin? God only. They get that Jesus, forgiving sin, is claiming deity. They accuse him of blasphemy. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Understand that the miracle. We can think of Jesus came to, to, to cure sick people and to heal paralytics. In part, he did, but... You get the priority here. The message of reconciliation and forgiveness is central. The miracle validates the claim. Jesus recognizes it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. And so that you don't scoff and say, who is this who offers to forgive sins? He does the miracle. He raises the man who is a paralytic. But get that the miracle is substantiating the claim of forgiveness by faith, by faith in Jesus Point three, finally, Jesus was born in fulfillment of Scripture. Again and again in Matthew's Gospel, I think I gave you many of the references, you'll read something like, now this happened to fulfill what was written. This happened to fulfill what was written. And here in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In the ABF hour, we can probably go back and look at Isaiah 7, the backdrop of this, but I just want to make three points from this. One, God is the author of salvation. This is according to a plan. This is according to promises and prophecies. This is according to things God said hundreds of Thousands of years earlier, the birth of the Son of God was not a last-minute alteration. It was the plan from the beginning. This is God's plan being fulfilled. Again and again in Matthew's Gospel, he wants you to understand the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus is all according to a fixed 
plan of salvation. All according to a fixed plan of salvation. God is the author. It started back in Genesis, even at the first sin, when God arrives on the scene, confronts Adam and Eve and the serpent. Even in the curse that is metered out is a promise. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he said to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is the one ultimately who would be bruised. His heel would be bruised. On the cross, he would be wounded. He would suffer. He would die. But in doing so, he would destroy death and sin and judgment. God is the author of salvation. He has planned it. This is the plan. This isn't a plan. This is the only way by which we can be reconciled with God. And this virgin birth is a necessary, crucial part of that plan. B, maybe obviously, but God keeps his word. God keeps his word. We're reading an account in Matthew of the birth of Jesus. We're reading an account of the life of Jesus. We're reading an account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Can I trust it? Yes, because God keeps his word. There's an unbreakable connection between what was said by the former prophets, Isaiah, Moses, Elijah, and what was said by the latter prophets and the apostles. And Matthew is highlighting God's faithfulness again and again. This happened to fulfill what was written. This happened to fulfill what was written. And what you get from that is if God promises something, he will do it. You can trust in it. You can count on it. And then as we read about the Savior he sent, by implication, you can trust in him. You can count on what he says. Because point C, and finally, God's word is wholly true. God's word is wholly true. The angel tells these three truths, and much more, to Joseph. He can marry Mary, because the child is born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully God, fully man. The reason this child has come, he will do many things. But principally, he has come to save his people from their sins. There is a Savior that God sent for your sins. That is the meaning of Christmas. And all this done in fulfillment of God's plan and purpose and his word. Turn to the end of of Matthew's gospel. I just want you to see where this culminates. If, If you're new here, if you're a guest, Jesus lives a sinless life. He gathers his disciples. He travels around Israel. He proves his Messiahship. Ultimately, he's rejected by a self-righteous people who don't want to be convicted of their sin. Now, as then, people are interested in an economic, social savior. The Jews wanted deliverance, not from their sin, but from the oppression of Rome. And so Jesus was crucified, all according to God's plan, And he rose on the third day. And Matthew's gospel ends. And I'll remind you again that God's word is trustworthy. We've seen that in Matthew. And this is the so what. This is coming out of the resurrection. Coming out of the crucifixion the resurrection. What's called the Great Commission. Matthew 28. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them. All authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the point we're living at now. The child has been born of Mary. The child lived a sinless life. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And he died on the cross for our sins. And he was risen on the third day. And he ascended into heaven. And the significance of those events is so great that for the last 2,000 years, God's people have been doing nothing but proclaiming that message and inviting all peoples of all tribes, of all nations to come. Come be disciples of the living Christ. Come learn to observe all that he has commanded. Come be baptized in his name. And that is why the child came. The meaning of Christmas is to enable the discipling of all peoples and all nations. And so understand, God's will for you is that you would bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would trust God's plan of salvation, that you would trust in the Messiah King, and that you would become a disciple and a follower, that you would take on his yoke for it is light and easy, and that you would learn to observe all that he commands. That, that is the so what coming out of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about any of the things we've covered this morning, talk to me, stick around from ABF. I'll invite you to pray as we prepare for our closing song. Lord God, you are so good in not leaving us alone, but in doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Where we could not deal with our sin and atone for our sin, you have sent one who could. You have not withheld from us the greatest gift possible, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us to understand Christmas rightly, the incarnation rightly, why it was necessary for him to come, to become human, what it means, and what then is required of us in response, that we might turn from our sin, that we might trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might become his disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.